I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. Welcome to part two of my interview with Katie Wyatt, Chief Investment Officer of the $1.5 billion Loyola University Chicago Endowment. In this episode, she discusses with us identifying high quality managers and how Loyola positions itself as a good partner. She also discusses investment strategies that interest her, and she shares advice on having a growth mindset. Before we get started, I invite you to join us at the Accelerate Investors Women Investment Leader Summit on June 30th in New York City. At the summit, you will have the opportunity to meet leading women investors. Of course, men are also welcome to join. For more information, please visit AccelerateInvestorsNY.com. Now on to today's conversation. I hope you enjoy. You mentioned valuations are high. Investors continue to grow their allocation into private markets. And as you mentioned, there are many managers and your investment directors are turning over those rocks. How do you differentiate among the numerous managers out there? Yes, that that is the, I think, the biggest place in our pipeline where the funnel is wide at the top and it's really narrow at the bottom because we're probably making maybe eight to nine allocations um, per year into privates. So, you know, we take about, we do about 25 plus calls a month, intro calls a month with prospective managers. But, you know, we're really focused on things that are very specific. And so that helps us narrow the funnel pretty quickly. We're focused on managers who are still, you know, Lower middle market with smaller fund sizes. I think that not only is that the area where there is the most opportunity, but with a lot of very big funds being raised out there, this is still, I think, the area where it's going to be um, better to deploy capital and then execute on the businesses. So we're really focused on finding GPs that are execution-oriented um, very engaged in managing the business with the entrepreneurs, oftentimes the first institutional capital. So places that there is still, um, I say low-hanging fruit, but still opportunity to transform the business, to grow it, and really institutionalize it. You know, we're looking for um, either established management teams or spin-outs, people with a very um, with a strong attribution from prior firms. You know, one of the top factors for us um, as we're partnering with GPs is, you know, how are they going to execute and transform the business, and what kind of a partnership um, can we have with them to form over the long term? How do you compete or what's the competition like among obtaining some investment opportunity in these managers? Well, it's certainly competitive. You know, it, it, it's competitive out there for the managers, you know, competing for deals. But, you know, with everybody increasing their allocation to private markets, 
you know, in a way, we have to position ourselves. <laughs> We're kind of selling Loyola as a desirable limited partner. But I think there's a lot to like about that. Um, that just, I think we're at a perfect size, actually. Our endowment is a perfect size. Our allocation of privates is 20% and growing. So I think there's a couple of good things to the story. You know, the check sizes that we write are meaningful, but manageable. <laughs> we usually write a check of, you know, eight to 10 million for kind of a, you know, core buyout manager. And I think that's a good number. I think that's a number that, um, you know, most GPs who are raising fund sizes were interested in, you know, a, a billion, under a billion. I think they find that a meaningful allocation and a good partner. Um, but it's small enough that you don't have to worry about, you know, LP concentration and, you know, Loyola getting too big or needing too much capacity. I think another interesting thing, you know, as we position ourselves with top GPs, you know, we're willing to lean into newer teams or spin-outs. We've underwritten some first-time funds. And there is an element uh, with our program about long-term partnership. We're growing our allocation from, you know, 10% when I joined to our target of 20. And, you know, we're a little bit of more than halfway to that initiative. So we're about 15% money in the ground now, working to 20. So we have a runway, and I think a lot of other LPs out there are having you know, challenges managing their re-ups. You know, their, their allocation budgets are full. They might not have room for uh, new opportunities, but we're out there looking to deploy capital and form long-term partners. So I think there's an element that we can grow together and, you know, if the funds perform well, we'll be a good limited partner for subsequent funds. Great. And I'm curious, during this pandemic, have you made any investment in any managers that you did not meet in person? <laughs> we have. <laughs> it, took, it took me a little bit of time to come to grips with the fact that I'm going to have to do that. Loyola had a particular challenge coming into the pandemic, uh, as specifically as relates private equity. So I mentioned we're trying to grow our allocation, but I was ready to hire staff in mid-March of 2020. And obviously, that was delayed. <laughs> like a lot of universities, you know, Loyola had to... Uh, deal with a lot of very heavy financial issues, and as such, they had a, there was a hiring freeze on for almost a year. So I I went into the pandemic with not a lot of reups that I was willing to do. Um, you know, we're looking for mostly new partnerships in our portfolio, and so without a lot of reups and with no staff to help me, <laughs> I did lean on a lot of. Um, relationships that I brought with me from Abbott, um, GPs that I've invested with before that were new for Loyola, but not new for me. But um, yeah, we did. We, you know, our, our consultant helped us um, identify some managers. I spent a lot of time on Zoom. But yeah, you know, eventually, you know, I, I've always been the old school person that I want to shake your hand, I want to look you in the eyeball, and I want to sit across the table and talk. And it took me a while to come to terms with the fact that that's not happening next month or two months from now or six months from now. So life goes on. We had to learn how to adapt. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
What types of strategies are you looking to gain more exposure to? Boy, um, more exposure. Well, I, I mentioned we're growing our private equity program. So we're looking to gain more exposure to that. You know, we're trying to, uh, I would say, kind of upgrade our our core buyout program. But we're trying to get more exposure to venture capital. So if you think about how well venture capital did in 2021, and if you think of all the all the eye popping returns that a lot of endowments put up from you know driven mostly by their private equity and particularly from their venture capital portfolios, Loyola had been under allocated over the past you know ten years to both um, you know just PE broadly but particularly venture. So you know it's an interesting time to try to gain more exposure to the asset class that has just been on fire. So we're trying to be thoughtful and careful because, you know, valuations are high and it does look quite frothy. But but yeah, we are trying to get more exposure to, you know, private marks generally and, and venture specifically. Got it. And is there a particular investment strategy that intrigues you and that you would like to learn more about? Um, yeah. So well, I, I mentioned climate tech earlier as, as an area that you know, as an institution, we want to pursue um, in its area I don't know that much about. So I am very interested in learning more. But, you know, as a team, we're also doing reading and learning about, you know, the venture space, different kinds of venture, but I guess specifically things like fintech, crypto, decentralized finance, um, you know, things that are kind of newer on the frontier. So that that's where our research is focused right now. Great. And thank you so much for this overview on your investment portfolio. We're now going to move on to our CIO to CIO question. And this question is from Jonathan Grable, and he's the chief investment officer of the Los Angeles County Employees Retirement Association. He asked the following, is it better to be a generalist or specialist? <sighs> wow. Um, I have to admit, I, I don't, I can't say one is better than the other. <laughs> All right. So this is a, it, it's going to sound like a cop-out answer, but it's actually not. Um, there are huge merits to both. So I started off as, well, I started off as a specialist. I covered hedge funds and, you know, private equity too. So I had started off as a specialist in kind of alternatives and I grew into a generalist role. So I think, you know, I, I think that was a good path because it really let you get deep in understanding specific strategies. It let you really know a space, really know what important questions to ask. And as you pick up uh, new asset classes and learn about those, it kind of prepares you for just how to ask questions, how to understand different asset classes. And then, you know, with a lot of experience under your belt, you can you can pretty much apply what you've learned across any asset category. So I kind of like, you know, I might be a little biased, but I, I think my path was a pretty good one is to start off as a specialist and get really deep in the weeds and then, you know, apply that knowledge to other asset classes and uh, kind of evolve into a generalist. And he has a follow-up question. In what circumstances would you change your initial answer? 
<laughs> so I think it kind of depends on what you want your career path to be. In my opinion, um, I've benefited enormously from having grown into a generalist. And now as chief investment officer, I can look across the entire portfolio, you know, any asset class and kind of understand how they, you know, how they work together. I would say I'd change the answer if if you find yourself in a position where you really like a specific asset class. As an example, you know, I know some people who are private equity specialists. And I think that there is a lot of merit to being really deep in one area if that is what you love to do. Because you have relationships with teams. You can follow people who spin out and go to different firms and you really have a better understanding of that ecosystem that is very valuable. So if you if you find yourself in a circumstance where you really enjoy um, deeply what you do and, and you'd like to be an expert in that particular um, in that particular niche, then I, I do think that's a very valuable in and of itself. And my follow-up, you are one of the few women chief investment officers. What advice would you have for underrepresented people in obtaining the CIO role? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure that my answer is all that specific to women or underrepresented um, people, but uh, the value of a big network can't be understated. So meet as many people as you can, build your brand, I would say, have a very active presence on, you know, LinkedIn, talk to recruiters, but, you know, work to build your brand. And um, I think that that's good advice all around, but, you know, particularly for women probably who have to, you know, maybe work a little bit harder at that. That's fantastic advice. Thank you. And now we're going to move on to a few personal questions. What is a book you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I recently read Mindset by Carol Dweck. Um, it's a really good book. It's about improving our lives by adopting a growth mindset. So she talks about fixed mindsets, people who believe that you either have a natural ability and talent or you don't, versus a growth mindset, which believes that people can develop and learn and cultivate new abilities and succeed. And I think it's an interesting study on how people respond to new challenges and how they respond to failures and how people either live, you know, if you're in a fixed mindset, you're kind of living in a fear of failure and you need to prove yourself and you have a constant need to, um, you have a constant need for approval. Often you feel threatened by other smart people. Versus growth-minded people who learn from mistakes, seek out, um, learn from other people, and have the confidence to refine and learn and continually get better. So I read it when I was transitioning into the CIO role at Loyola and um, taking on a new, but admittedly a little bit of an intimidating challenge. So I think it's a really good read for anyone going through a transition or managing people. Thank you. What's your best personal money advice? <laughs> oh boy, the, you know the the most um, <laughs> the most annoying thing about this business is that I'm really excited about finding great investments for my institution, 
but a lot of my best ideas I'm not able to invest in personally, not only just because that would be, you know, a conflict of interest, but um, I can't meet the multi-million dollar minimum investment sizes. So <laughs> for personal money advice, um, I would just keep it simple. I think one of the most important things is, is just save as much as you're able. Live within your means and invest with the next 30 years in mind. So regardless of what stocks you pick or funds or index you invest in, I think the truly the best thing that you can really do um, is you know save and have a long-term time horizon. I think that's just the best and simplest path to building financial security. What's your favorite story or moment of experiencing cultural diversity? When I was in college, I had the opportunity to study abroad. And I, I lived in Vienna, Austria for semester. And I lived in a dorm with students all from all over the world. And, you know, the biggest takeaway, you know, from living and sharing space with, you know, students of many different cultures and backgrounds was that, you know, all of our our differences were interesting. We have different cultures, different perspectives, different preferences. But, you know, living together um, in a community, we, we found that we are all so fundamentally the same. And I really liked that. And it helped me, um, you know, even just living here in Chicago, just helping you realize that we can celebrate our differences that make us unique, but you really, people are people. You know, people are the kind of fundamentally the same all over. And, um, you know, I've had the privilege of traveling, you know, pretty extensively to other countries. I find it really fascinating to experience being in a place where I'm the stranger. I don't speak the language. I have no idea what I just ordered from the menu. <laughs> and I can really immerse myself in a culture that's just very different from my own. Um, you know, I'll share a time when I went to Singapore for work. I spent, you know, after I did all my meetings and kind of the, you know, the city section, I spent an extra day. And I went into some of the neighborhoods. There's, there's an Indian neighborhood and I visited a Hindu temple. You know, I left my shoes outside in a pile of like 300 other shoes. I wore this beautiful wreath of flowers around my neck. And I just was able to sit in the presence of, you know, this, this completely different culture from my own and be present with them while they were worshiping at this temple. So, you know, for a girl who grew up, I would say, Midwest middle class, I really enjoy being in places where I'm a little bit of an outsider because it helps you understand that the world is so much bigger than your town, your city, your state, or even your own country. And there's such a richness in other cultures that we've never experienced. And I think everybody should have that experience if you can, just knowing that the world is bigger than you and your small experience of it. I completely agree with you about study abroad. One of my best friends is Austrian, and we met when we were studying abroad in Hong Kong. It was an amazing <laughs> experience. <laughs> COVID-19 continues to deeply impact our lives. What do you know now in a deeper way than you knew it before the start of the pandemic in 2020? 
Um, I would say resilience. <laughs> you know, we, we have all been through this just horrible experience and we have all been tested in ways that we didn't ever anticipate. And, you know, some people have been tested by their own health, um, the health of people they love. A lot of us have lost people, but a lot of us, you know, muddled through and just did the best we could trying to figure out how to, how to get by, whether it's working in a different way than we've ever been used to or homeschooling our children while we're trying to work in a different way. And there's days that we pretty much had no idea how we were just going to even get the job done. But, you know, here we are almost two years later and, you know, in a way things have opened up, but, you know, in a way (laughs) each variant comes and we're right back where we started more or less. And, um, you know, I think where we were fearful two years ago, we've learned how to adapt and how to pivot. So I've just been impressed with the resilience that everyone has shown throughout this whole process. And lastly, what is the best advice you've ever received or advice that you would impart to others? You know, when I was starting this job and I mentioned, you know, it's it was a, a kind of a big task ahead of me, taking a job and, and building an investment office from the ground up. <laughs> when I, I moved into a CIO role from a director role, I moved to a new organization and I moved into a situation where it was really a blank slate. I just, whatever I wanted this office to be, I had to build it. Um, and I had no idea how to do that. <laughs> and so it was, a, it was very exciting. It was a little terrifying, you know, and a, certainly a challenge. And I read a quote that I think is great advice. And it says, learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I was very uncomfortable in a lot of ways taking on a new challenge, but you know, it's there's so much growth that has come out of it, and if you are, if you can learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable, that is really the only way you grow. And the best growth that I've experienced professionally, personally, has come out of times where, you know, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm worried I'm going to fail. I'm uncomfortable because I've just taken on a new challenge doing something I've never done before, doing something that I have no idea how to do. But if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And um, yeah, so that's my advice. Learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That is great advice. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights with us. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you in person soon at an Accelerate Investors Conference. I look forward to that. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. Thank you for listening to part two of my conversation with Katie Wyatt. We look forward to seeing many of you on June 30th in New York City for the Accelerate Investors Women Investment Leaders Summit. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.